I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. and welcome to this episode of OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong. This week, we're back to Adam Smith, taking on the second part of Chapter 10 of Book 1 of The Wealth of Nations. Uh, The title of this section is Inequalities Occasioned by the Policies of Europe. As the title suggests, while last time we were looking at inequalities in wages and profits that are naturally occurring, This time, we're going to be covering inequalities that are created as a result of basically government policies. We've touched on this kind of thing more than a few times in the past, and and I think that the overall takeaway when it comes to government regulation of the economy is that regulation can be necessary to a market system. It can even in some cases be beneficial like when it prevents a drift towards monopolization. However, when you're trying to control outcomes in in something as large and complicated as a, a national economy, it can be incredibly hard to craft regulations that will not have adverse second and third order effects. This is made more likely, too, when the people who craft those regulations are not themselves well-versed in economics, or when they have an agenda all their own. Now, I I don't want to bag on lawmakers here. I I honestly believe that most lawmakers craft their, their economic regulations with all the best intentions at the time. I don't really think anyone sits down to write a law or a regulation thinking, well, how can I tank the economy with this one? Typically, lawmakers are trying to solve a very real problem, but it's a problem that's right in front of them. They're trying to put out a fire. Uh, 
They're trying to create jobs and stimulate growth. They're trying to help the economy. The problem is that the economy is so massive with this complicated web of interrelating strands and inputs and outputs that reaching in and, and making a change without creating a ripple effect is incredibly difficult, if not entirely impossible. It's kind of like a town building a flood wall to protect themselves from their, their river overtopping its banks. Even if the flood wall works and, and the town is saved from the flood waters, you're not stopping the rise of the water in the river, you're just redirecting it. And instead of your town flooding, a different one a few miles downstream does. Regulations on the economy are neither inherently good or bad, even though everyone seems to want to paint them as one or the other. It's important, though, to remember how complicated the system is that you're affecting and, and having a healthy respect for the, at least the potential of unintended consequences that can result from trying to impact it. So let's see what Smith has to say about it. He points out three key ways in which the, the governmental policies throughout Europe in his time create inequalities in the economy. The first is that it restricts competition in, in some employments, primarily by offering exclusive privileges to some corporations. To quote him directly, he says this, quote, The exclusive privileges of corporations are the principal means it makes use of for this purpose. The exclusive privilege of an incorporated trade necessarily restrains the competition in the town where it is established to those who are free of the trade. To have served an apprenticeship in the town under a master properly qualified is commonly the necessary requisite for obtaining this freedom. The bylaws of the corporation regulate sometimes the number of apprentices which any master is allowed to have, and almost always the number of years which each apprentice is obliged to serve. The intention of both regulations is to restrain the competition to a much smaller number than might otherwise be disposed of to enter into the trade. The limitation of the number of apprentices restrains it directly. A long term of apprenticeship restrains it more indirectly, but as effectually by increasing the expense of education. Smith elaborates that the statutes of apprenticeship in England were, were created under Queen Elizabeth I. The seven-year term of apprenticeship seems to be based on the, the ancient traditions in, in some trades. Now, the problem crops up here because the government of England was basically applying a, a seemingly arbitrary standard in, in a broad manner across all trades. When the statute of apprenticeship was put in place, it was worded in such a way as to cover a broad number of trades while at the same time excluding some, again, simply by the way it was written. This led to a very uneven application of the established rules of apprenticeship. Smith says here, quote, It can be adjudged, for example, that a coachmaker 
can neither himself make nor employ journeymen to make his coach wheels, but must buy them from a master wheelwright. This latter trade having been exercised in England before the fifth of Elizabeth. But a wheelwright, though he has never served an apprenticeship to a coachmaker, may either himself make or employ journeymen to make coaches, the trade of a coachmaker not being within the statute, because not exercised in England at the time when it was made. The manufacturers of Manchester, Birmingham, and Wolf Wolverhampton are many of them upon this account not within the statute, not having been exercised in England before the 5th of Elizabeth. Smith's example here demonstrates the, the unintended consequences that can occur when, when poorly written or poorly considered regulations are put in place, and the inequalities within the economy that this creates. The problem with the statutes of apprenticeship are that when applied, when applied broadly across all trades, it prevents those trades from setting their own standards, which should, emphasis on should, allow them to adjust those standards to meet the requirements of their specific trade. It's not hard to believe that the time it would take a master of one trade may not be the same as it is to master another one. Carpenters may need less time to get trainees up to a level of proficiency than electricians, and, and plumbers may need more time than either of the two. The point is that each trade will probably need different amounts of time for apprenticeship, and who better than the people in those trades to know how long that might be. Now, you may think that seven years is meant to ensure that each apprentice is, is truly a master of their trade, and, and there's nothing wrong with making sure that professionals know their craft. So what's the issue with making them learn a little longer than they might actually need? The issue comes up in that apprentices, at least in Smith's day, often trained under masters for no pay. And in some cases, they, they actually had to pay for their instruction. This dynamic creates the need for an incentive structure to match the costs involved. We, we, we talked about this last chapter. If the length of apprenticeship is seven years, no matter what amount of time it might actually take to master a trade, the eventual compensation for those newly minted masters will have to be enough to make the seven-year span of training worthwhile. And this will probably drive prices up uh, in some of those trades that wouldn't necessarily need the, as much training time. It can also create issues with the labor supply. If there's a sudden and desperate need for carpenters, uh, that demand should drive wages for carpenters up, which would serve to incentivize more people to become carpenters, thus providing the market with the additional labor that was needed to fill the demand. That additional supply of labor would meet the demand and then drive wages back down to their equilibrium level, the desired effect at the lowest price. But with a seven-year minimum apprenticeship, 
those people driven into carpentry by the prospect of the higher wages wouldn't be able to benefit from those wages because they're training for no pay. And even if those wages were enough to, to make the seven-year wait worthwhile, there's no guarantee that the high demand for carpenters will still exist seven years later. If not, there'll wind up being a glut of, of newly minted master carpenters entering the market at a time where demand for labor is less than the supply of labor, which will cause wages for carpenters to drop as they compete against each other for work. Meanwhile, while those new apprentices are training and the demand is high, the limited supply of labor will, will price the wages of those master carpenters, who or the, those people who are currently master carpenters, it'll drive those wages up, which will result in consumers paying an unnaturally high price for their services. The regulation, as it was written, effectively prevents the market for labor in certain trades from responding to consumer demand, which creates unnatural inequalities in both wages and profits. Smith sums this up here in, in the chapter, uh, along with a few preemptive responses to any anyone who might be a detractor of his ideas. Uh, he says this, quote, the property which every man has in his own labor, as it is the original foundation of all other property, so it is the most sacred and inviolable. The patrimony of a poor man lies in the strength and dexterity of his hands, and to hinder him from employing this strength and dexterity in what manner he thinks proper, without injury to his neighbor, is a plain violation of this most sacred property. It is a manifest encroachment upon the just liberty both of the workmen and of those who might be disposed to employ him, as it hinders the one from working at what he thinks proper, so it hinders the others from employing whom they think proper. To judge whether he is fit to be employed may surely be trusted to the discretion of the employers whose interest is so much concerns. The affected anxiety of the lawgiver, lest they should employ an improper person, is evidently as impertinent as it is oppressive. The institution of long apprenticeships can give no security that insufficient workmanship shall not frequently be exposed to public sale. When this is done, it is generally the effect of fraud, and not of inability, and the longest apprenticeship can give no security against fraud. Quite different regulations are necessary to prevent this abuse. The sterling mark upon the plate and the stamp upon linen and woolen cloth give the purchaser much greater security than any statute of apprenticeship. He generally looks at these, but never thinks it worthwhile to inquire whether the workman had served a seven-year apprenticeship. The institution of long apprenticeships has no tendency to form young people to industry. A journeyman who works by the piece is likely to be industrious, because he derives a benefit from every exertion of his industry. An apprentice is likely to be idle, and almost always is so, because he has no immediate interest to be otherwise. In the inferior employments, the, the suites of labor consist altogether in the recompense of labor. They 
who are soonest in a condition to enjoy the sweets of it, are likely soonest to conceive a relish for it, and to acquire the early habit of industry. A young man naturally conceives an aversion to labor, when for a long time he receives no benefit from it. The boys who are put out apprentices, apprentices for public charities are generally bound for more than the usual number of years, and they generally turn out very idle and worthless. As he points out here, a long term of apprenticeship may have been intended as a protection against poor work. After all, if you have to study your trade for seven years, you should wind up knowing it, how to do it pretty well. But of course, long apprenticeship doesn't guarantee good work, because there's always a chance that the apprentice didn't study very hard, or that they will engage in some kind of fraud, regardless of the length of their study. I think this is an important idea because it highlights the dilemma of regulation. Now, there are plenty of people out there who would look at this and say, well, see, this is why there should be no regulations, because, because government just can't get it right. But that's not quite right. The lesson to take away from Smith's observations here isn't that regulations are, by their nature, at best pointless and at worst destructive. The lesson is that regulations need to be carefully applied. The statute of apprenticeship wasn't put in place to screw over apprentices or, or consumers. It was put in place to try to ensure that those people claiming to be master craftsmen are actually masters of their craft. And that's a noble and reasonable pursuit. The problem occurs in the fact that the statutes of apprenticeship wasn't really thought through with consideration for its impact on market forces as well as those, again, potential secondary effects. If there's a moral to this story, I wouldn't say that the government shouldn't try to impose standards on craftsmen. It's that such standards need to be carefully crafted in order to truly have the desired effect. Also, I think that governments, and, and really people in general, sometimes lack the patience for market forces to take effect. Smith points out that you don't necessarily need to put in place regulations that try to prevent bad work from being done. The bad work will speak for itself, and consumers will cease to use the craftsmen who produce that bad work, and they will in turn go out of business. The issue with that is, of course, that a process like this takes time. Customers need to engage that craftsman and be disappointed in their work, and then they need to spread that disappointment through word of mouth, thus ensuring that other customers learn to avoid that specific craftsman, thus ensuring that they will have so little business as they have to close up shop. Closing the loop market forces solve the problem. The problem, is, the problem with that is it takes time. In Smith's day, that could take quite a while. In our modern context with, with things like Yelp, that process can be accelerated. Now, 
If the bad work from the craftsman crosses the line into fraud, there are, or at least should be, laws that consumers can avail themselves of to punish the, the, you know, the fraudulent craftsman. Of course, because situations in economic policy are never simple, lawmakers may look at a scenario like this and say that letting market forces play out may, may sound like a reasonable answer. But what if the poor quality of the work is such that it's putting the lives of consumers at risk? If a carpenter is so negligent that the houses that they're building collapse, killing the people inside, yes, we can prosecute the carpenter after the fact, but with a law in place, those lives could have been saved before such a tragedy could occur. And that's a fair point. The drawback of the pure market solution is that you can't prevent the consequences of poor work from occurring. In fact, they need to occur in order for consumers to learn how bad of a job a particular craftsman is doing. That's all well and good if we're talking about someone making chairs that aren't sturdy. While I suppose possible, it's pretty unlikely that anyone will die because a chair breaks when they sit on it. But when we're talking about more high-stakes products, like a house, or a car, or an airplane, where if something goes wrong due to poor craftsmanship, the results are catastrophic. It's harder to wave that away by saying, oh, well, the market will sort it out. If you're hoping for a definitive answer to that, I don't have one. It's human instinct to try to prevent tragedies like those that, that can occur from poor craftsmanship. And, and while the cold, hard economic answer of let the market decide isn't wrong, I don't think that our inclination to try to prevent such events before they happen is wrong either. It's why I've said in, in this and other episodes that, again, while not all regulations of the economy are good... And while they can have unintended consequences, not all regulations on the economy are bad either. Smith continues on exploring ways in which regulations of all kinds can have impacts on the economy which result in unnatural inequalities. The next one that he highlights, going back to one of Smith's favorite punching bags, is the negative impact that corporations can have. Now, to be clear, the word corporation, as Smith uses it, has a slightly different meaning than it does today. Uh, basically, what, what he's talking about would be like a, a, a syndicate or, or a, a group of businesses uh, grouping together under a, a set of rules and bylaws. Uh, but even even with that distinction, I, I, I think there are some useful correlations that, that can be drawn from the point he's making. Going back to the statutes of apprenticeship, Smith points out that while these regulations were put in place by the Crown with the intention of protecting consumers, they are undoubtedly to the benefit of the master craftsman. He explains it in this way. 
Long apprenticeships are altogether unnecessary. The arts, which are much superior to common trades, such as those of making clocks and watches, contain no such mystery as to require a long course of instruction. The first invention of such beautiful machines indeed, and even that of some of the instruments employed in making them, must no doubt have been the work of deep thought and long time, and may justly be considered as among the happiest of efforts of human ingenuity. But when both have been fairly invented, and are well understood, to explain to any young man, in the completest manner, how to apply the instruments and how to construct the machines, cannot well require more than the lessons of a few weeks. Perhaps those of a few days might be sufficient. In the common mechanic trades, those of a few days might certainly be sufficient. The dexterity of hand, indeed, even in common trades, cannot be acquired uh, without much practice and experience. But a young man would practice with much more diligence and attention if from the beginning he wrought as a journeyman, being paid in proportion to the little work which he could execute, and paying in his turn for the materials which he might sometimes spoil through awkwardness and inexperience. His education would generally, in this way, be more effectual, and always less tedious and expensive. The master, indeed, would be a loser. He would lose all the wages of the apprentice, which he now saves for seven years together. In the end, perhaps the apprentice himself would be a loser. In a trade so easily learnt, he would have more competitors, and his wages, when he came to be a complete workman, would be much less than at present. The same increase of competition would reduce the profits of the masters as well as the wages of the workmen. The trades, the craftsmen, the mysteries would all be losers, but the public would be a gainer. The work of all artificers coming in this way much cheaper to market. It is to prevent this reduction of price and consequently of wages and profit by restraining that free competition, which would most certainly occasion it, that all corporations and the greater part of corpor uh, corporation laws have been established. In his rather contemptuous view of corporations, Smith does reveal something very interesting about the incentives at play in such a system. For one, the government of England was the only power that could grant a charter of incorporation. But because the people applying for such a charter had to pay a fee to the crown, the government had an incentive to grant charters to anyone who applied in order to collect the fees. This led to bad results, or as Smith puts it, uh, quote, this prerogative of the crown seems to have been reserved rather for extorting money from the subject than for the defense of the common liberty against such oppressive monopolies. If the government stands to profit from the creation of monopolistic power, then the government is probably going to allow monopolistic power to be created. And 
As we have already learned, tradesmen and merchants always have an incentive to stifle competition because it allows them to keep their prices higher and to invest less in improving their products and services. Smith says, quote, The government of towns corporate was altogether in the hands of traders and artificers, and it was the manifest interest of every particular class of them to prevent the market from being overstocked, as they commonly express it, with their own particular species of industry, which is, in reality, to keep it always understocked. Each class was eager to establish regulations proper for this purpose, and, provided it was allowed to do so, was willing to consent that every other class should do the same. In consequence of such regulations, indeed, each class was obliged to buy the goods they had occasioned for from every other within the town, somewhat dearer than they otherwise might have done. But in recompense, they were enabled to sell their own just as much dearer, so that so far it was a broad, as broad as long as they say. And in the dealings of the different classes within the town with one another, none of them were losers by these regulations but in their dealings with the country, they were all gainers. And in these later dealings consists the whole trade which supports and enriches every town. Now, Smith goes into some detail about how these natural inequalities between uh, urban and rural economies, which, which will become exasperated by the unnatural inequalities created by the monopolistic powers generated under the uh, combination and incorporation. The, the fact of the matter is that this is something that we as consumers must always be wary of because the incentive is always going to be for any business uh, or corporation to, to do this kind of stuff, to, to uh, either monopolize or, or collude. Smith's mistrust of the incentives of organized holders of stock culminates in what has to be one of the best quotes of the entire book. In referring to what laws and regulations should be put in place in order to ensure free and open markets, he says this, quote, People of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion, but the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public, or in some contrivance to raise prices. It is impossible indeed to prevent such meetings by any law, which either could be ex executed or would be consistent with liberty and justice. But though the law cannot hinder people of the same trade from sometimes assembling together, it ought to do nothing to facilitate such assemblies, much less to render them necessary. Again, one of my all-time favorite Smith quotes. Anyway, he goes on to point out something interesting here. He, he notes that the, the real thing at issue when it comes to incorporation is not so much traders, merchants, or craftsmen getting together to collude but rather the fact that through articles of incorporation, and, and again, like I say, we're talking about uh, businesses incorporating 
amongst each other. Uh, those businessmen are able to make the terms of their collusion binding. That may sound a little odd, so let me explain. The threat of collusion among businesses isn't necessarily a true danger in a free market. If you've got a, a, a city that has five major producers of, say, coffee makers, the owners of those five businesses could easily get together and decide that they should raise the price of coffee makers so that all of them make a higher profit margin on each of their products. Now, this is clearly collusion to, to suppress competition, and that is illegal. But while there are laws against that, and while we have the Federal Trade Commission in place to prevent that, there's actually a market solution to this problem. You see, let's say there are no laws preventing collusion, and, and let's say there is no FTC keeping an eye out for this kind of thing. So the five owners decide to raise the price of coffee makers so that all of them are charging $100 a piece for their product instead of, I don't know, let, let's make math easy and say that they've been charging between $25 and $30 uh, previously. That's not a bad deal. They all get to increase their profits by $70 to $75 and they all make out like bandits, right? Except what we know will happen is that one of those owners will look out at the market and see that with everyone charging the same price for coffee makers, sales are pretty evenly distributed. And they'll inevitably have the thought of, well, if I drop my price to $90, I'd still be making way more than I had been, but with the lower price... I'd corner the market. And that would be true. Except that the other four owners of the coffee maker businesses are all having that exact same thought at the exact same time. And once the first one defects from their agreement and drops his price, the others will think, well, I'm not just going to stand here and let the market get cornered by somebody else. I'll drop my price to $80 still making about $50 more than I had been, and I'll corner the market. And this will go on, with each one defecting from their agreement and lowering their price to try to corner the market until they each hit the point where they can't charge any less or else they'd no longer be making any profit, which in this scenario is about $25. Right back to where they started. And that works, because in a truly free market, even with a, a, a very sensible plan of collusion in place, there is always going to be incentive uh, to break from that agreement. The market has an incentive structure that prevents anti-competitive behavior. However, as Smith points out here, that balance breaks down when incorporated entities are allowed to make bylaws and, and agreements binding. So instead of just agreeing to raise the price of coffee makers to $100, the same five business owners decide to put into effect a bylaw amongst themselves that says if anyone lowers the price below $100, they will incur a, I don't know, $10 million fine. 
and that would allow for an effective breakdown of market forces. Smith wraps up this section with, with this. He says, quote, The pretense that corporations are necessary for the better government of the trade is without any foundation. The real and effectual discipline, which is exercised over a workman, is not that of his corporation, but that of his customers. It is the fear of losing their employment which restrains his frauds and corrects his negligence. An exclusive corporation necessarily weakens the forces of this discipline. So the second way in which policy in Europe creates unnatural inequalities is by increasing competition in some trades. And you, you may be saying, well, well, wait, we just talked about how limiting competition was bad, and I, I thought competition was good. How can there be too much? Well, the example of this that, that Smith provides is is when outside factors promote the creation of more workers than the market actually requires. Specifically, Smith talks about how through scholarships and pensions and, and, and other outside uh, financial sources, uh, there was a, a promotion in his time, or there was a push in his time to promote people to join the clergy. They effectively produced such a glut of clergymen that it drove down the, the wages for clergymen across the board. And this is another example of what would be a, a fairly well-meaning bit of policy having unintended consequences. Basically, English society at the time looked very highly on clergymen. After all, what, what could be a more noble calling than to, to be a man of God? So from a social point of view, they created allotments to help more people join the church. However, while their intentions may have been pure, by doing so they were creating an imbalance in the labor market for clergy. Under normal circumstances, only enough people would enter the clergy as the compensation involved would incentivize. Going through seminary training was costly both in terms of money and time. But by creating a, a scholarship or something like that, which would take away some of that burden, it altered the incentive structure and created a, uh, the, uh, an, uh, increased the number of people for whom this job was now worthwhile. Except, of course, by increasing the supply of labor for positions in the clergy, and with demand for clergymen being relatively steady, all this served to do was drive down the wages for clergymen, creating a number of negative externalities which included the need for local communities to supplement their clergymen's income. So by putting money towards creating more clergymen, the people of England were creating a situation where they would later have to shell out still more money to help support the additional clergymen that they had paid money to create. Competition is good, but here we're not looking at just competition. We're looking at creating in unnatural imbalances in, in the markets. And regardless of what direction that takes, it's going to lead to bad results. 
Smith extends this to other professions as well, namely teachers, of which, let's not forget, he was one. And, and, and more than that, he was one who felt that his wages were lower than they should be. So let's keep that in mind. But the same idea applies. The incentives to become a teacher versus the costs in time, money, and effort create a delicate balance that should produce the exact number of teachers that the economy requires. But either through a perceived shortage, likely due to a temporary lack of labor, or simply through conscientiousness and, and believing that teachers are important and they should get some help along the way to becoming one, that balance was disturbed, and it created a greater supply than there was a demand. This is compounded by the fact that the less skilled teachers are also going to be more likely to underbid for their services, and thus push those teachers who correctly have a higher regard for their skills out of the market, or at the very least force them to drop their bid for wages as well. Again, there is always the possibility that Smith was inserting his own complaints about his paycheck into his greater philosophy. But the logic here is sound. I'm just saying the section about how teachers are underpaid goes on for like three pages here. The third group of policies, creating an unnatural inequalities, uh, regard the free circulation of labor. So again, I, I, I keep using this term balance and, and, and delicate webs. I, I, I guess... When we're talking about this, you need to picture the economy as a, as a very elaborate series of scales, like, you know, balancing scales. And they're all tied together with one another. And so they're all counterbalancing each other. And when things are working correctly, all the scales, and we're talking about thousands of them, all have, have weights on them that cause the whole connected apparatus to be equally balanced. That is an economy at equilibrium. But of course, inevitably, we're going to place another weight on one of those scales, and that's going to throw off the entire network of, of balancing and counterbalancing that we had in place. So we're then going to have to move some of the little weights around in order to regain that state of perfect balance the movement of those weights to regain a state of balance is essentially the idea of circulation of labor, and it breaks down in two ways. The first is geographic. If, if a factory opens up in a, a small town, that town is probably not going to have enough people to fully staff it. In order to get that balance, and, and to fully staff the factory, the people throughout the country in which this small town is located are going to need to have the ability to easily move from where they were living to this small town so that they can fill the jobs needed at the new factory. Any policies that hinder that kind of geographic circulation are going to have a negative impact on the economy as a whole. Either the factory will open and will simply be understaffed, 
or the owner will decide that they can't open the factory in this small town because they'll never be able to get an adequate labor force. Geographic circulation of labor is critical in any dynamic market economy. As things shift and, and change, the labor force needs to have the ability to shift with them. It's why a, a strong housing market is important to an economy, because it allows for people to take a job that requires relocation, sell their home, and purchase a new one near their new job. In Smith's time, this kind of thing wasn't always possible, because there were restrictions on, on skilled labor that prevented free geographic circulation. Basically, a town could put up rules and requirements that made it nearly impossible for people to simply move there and start working in certain trades. These rules were meant to protect the businesses that were already operating in that town. But they, what they really served to do was prevent new labor from uh, entering to meet either increased demand or to cre create additional competition. The other way that this problem can exist is in workers' ability to change their field. In a purely free market, it would be incredibly easy for, say, a carpenter to switch over to being a plumber, depending on the current demand of the market. Now again, th this can get tricky because obviously specific training is required for each job. But, but picture a worker that through their life, has picked up the skills necessary for both carpentry and plumbing. Now again, ideally, they would be able to shift their job depending on whether the market needed houses built or plumbing installed. Where this breaks down is when policies are put in place requiring special permissions to work in a given field, and where the ability to shift is either expressly prohibited or prohibitively expensive. Such policies prevent the labor force from shifting to meet demand and create inequalities across the entire market. Thinking about it in, in, in a more modern context, we, we, we see more and more that it's becoming important for large chunks of our labor force to be given opportunities to train in new fields as technology eliminates the need for certain jobs. In order to prevent those workers who are in jobs that are being replaced by machines from simply being unemployed, there needs to be opportunities for them to get training and experience in something else. That ability to, to shift within the labor market is incredibly important to keeping all of those scales perfectly balanced, and policies that prevent that kind of free movement are only going to hurt the overall economy. Smith wraps up this chapter with, with this patch, passage, which I, I think is important to take note of. Uh, he says, quote, The proportion between the different rates both of wages and profit in the different employments of labor and stock seem not to be much affected, as has already been observed, by the riches or poverty, the advancing, stationary, or declining state of society. Such revolutions in the public welfare, though they affect the general rates, both of wages and profit, must, in the end, affect them equally in all different employments. The proportion between them, therefore, must remain the same and cannot well be altered, 
at least for any considerable time, by any such revolutions. And this ties back to the theme that uh, I've pushed throughout this podcast, and going all the way back to episode one. It's the idea that the policies that he's been talking about through this whole section are political policies with political motivations. Some of those motivations are bad, like allowing groups of businesses to engage in price fixing or wage suppression. And some of the motivations are good, like thinking that people who want to be teachers should get scholarships to help them live that dream. But regardless of the nobility of the motivations, the fact remains that the economy is decidedly apolitical. The rules governing the way an economy operates don't change to conform to social or political sentiment. And sometimes, when such sentiments are applied to the economy, they can create disastrous results. But like I said at the beginning of the episode, while Smith is correct about the apolitical nature of the economy, I don't think that the moral of this story is to never try to impose any kind of regulation on it. There are some regulations that serve to ensure markets remain free. There are regulations that alter incentive structures in ways that actually produce better results. There are regulations that support the free market. But there are plenty of other regulations that create terrible second-order effects, too. And we can't forget that. And we certainly can't rely on the good intentions of a given policy or regulation to necessarily lead to good results. The moral here is that the economy is a complex web of variables, all in balance with one another, and putting any policy or regulation in place is going to throw off that balance. Now, sometimes that can be for the better, but sometimes it can be for the worse. If you're going to attempt to put something in place that's going to throw off the delicate balance in the economy, you need to spend a great deal of time and effort considering the possible ramifications of it and whether it's worth the consequences. And here endeth the lesson. And here endeth the episode. That was a big chapter, I know. And the next one is even bigger. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm thinking that I'm going to have to chop Book 1, Chapter 11 into three parts. But uh, let's see how that goes. I do hope that these Wealth of Nations episodes are, are worthwhile and engaging for all of you out there. I know they can be a little dry sometimes, but if you want to understand the key ideas of economics, there is no better place to start than with Adam Smith. Also, we are now uh, 165 pages in, so that's about 16% uh, of, you know, getting all the way through the book. So, hey, progress. Uh, as always, if you want to tell me why I'm wrong, and, you know, I, I'm sure some of you do, uh, you can, uh, there's no better place to do it than uh, on our Facebook group. Uh, you can find it by searching, okay, let me tell you why you're wrong, uh, in, in the Facebook search window, or if you just check the show notes, 
uh, I always leave a link to the uh, Facebook group there. Come on out, join the conversation, leave a comment, throw a suggestion for, for a future episode. And uh, again, if you needed more reason to join the Facebook group, again, we do have some some sweet merch coming down the line. Uh, I posted the uh, It Depends uh, t-shirt design out there. I will very, uh, very soon be posting another t-shirt design that may have something or other to do with Adam Smith. Who knows? Um, not on Facebook. That's fine. Uh, you can email me directly at okay, let me tell you why you're wrong at gmail.com. All one word, no comma, no apostrophe. And as I found out, I will clarify it is okay. O- it's spelled O K A Y, not okay, spelled O K. Um, just got an email from uh, one of you out there who, who was mixing that up for a, for a little while. So, uh, figured I, I should clarify that one. Uh, be sure to take a minute, give the podcast a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, again, say it every time and, and it's true every time. Uh, those ratings, those reviews, uh, really help get the podcast noticed by more people. And, uh, I really appreciate them. Plus again, any suggestions you have, uh, for improvements that you make as part of the review, I'm, I'm happy to consider. I think I've been pretty good about that so far. Uh, thanks always to George Sacco for composing the music that I use in the intro and outro of the show. Uh, don't forget, do have another podcast out there called Let's Plan a Wedding. It's my fiance and I talking about, well, like the title suggests, planning our wedding. And of course, as always, thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, we will be back next week with a, a topic episode and then back in two weeks with part one of chapter 11 of book one uh, of the wealth of nations uh with that i'm dave yost and this has been okay let me tell you why you're wrong